1: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hey, it's Matea, reminding you that this show
2: cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a CanadaLand supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all CanadaLand shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup – more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a CanadaLand supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to CanadaLand.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today.
0: This episode of OPPO is brought to you by Wealthbar. Whether you've got $1,000 or a million, WealthBar makes accessing professionally managed investments and financial advice ridiculously easy. Start investing with an advisor at your fingertips through Wealth Bar's top-rated app. Sign up online in minutes at wealthbar.com slash CanadaLand and you'll get a $100 fee
1: credit. From CanadaLand, this is Oppo. Hi, I'm Sandy Garrosino And I'm Jen Gerson,
0: stuck in my basement in Calgary, trying to escape the evils of my nightmare children.
1: Oh, they're the joy of your life, Jen. What are you talking about? Uh, there are no joys without struggles. Let's just put it that way. Children, children. On this week's show, we try to unpack the blame China sentiment taking place in Canada and across the world.
0: And for some help with this, we asked Joanna Chu, the very excellent Vancouver reporter for the Toronto Star, to come on the show and walk us through how this is impacting Canadians.
1: But before we get into the nitty gritty of our interview with Joanna, we wanted to share a couple of recent stories that we won't be covering in depth this time.
0: The rules for this new segment are that we each have about 90 seconds to get through a topic. So are you ready, Sandy? What do you got, Jen? Well, this week in the National Post, there was a really excellent little piece about fraud and the Canadian Emergency Relief Benefit. According to the Post, a source familiar with the situation claimed that there were about 200,000 applications that had already been red flagged as possibly fraudulent because of sort of odd and dubious claims of past employment income and other factors. But essentially, the CRA has been told... We're not really interested in pursuing this. We're not really interested in getting these people out of the system. And we're not really going to be paying all that much attention to fraudulent claims. I think there's a lot of interesting reasons why that's happening. One, probably because the whole system is so overwhelmed that realistically they can't devote a whole lot of um, energy toward enforcement. But what I found interesting about this uh, whole story was the degree to which conservative and especially places like the Canadian Taxpayers Federation really clambered onto it. Of course, there is a growing concern about the CERB and how it may be um, dissuading people from returning to work and whether or not it's a good program. Personally, I have to be honest with you, even though this came across my feed and was sort of a big thing on it, I don't care, Sandy. And do you want to know why I don't care?
1: Why don't you care, Jen?
0: Because I'm one of those people who is advocating for a universal basic income. The whole purpose of the CERB really was to just dump a shit ton of money into the economy so that people didn't starve to death. And I would have been perfectly content with them literally just handing out envelopes of cash and painting people's uh, hands with ink to show that they had received (laughs) it. Like, that was the purpose of this program. It was really just to stimulate the economy. So like, yes, okay, if there are people who are grossly defrauding the system, uh, you know, I hope that that gets pursued at a later date through audits. You know, I don't really think we should create a system where we're, we're, we're benefiting fraudsters, But at the same time, like, I can't really get all that worked up about this one either.
1: Well, n- neither can I. It was this was we're in the midst of a global national emergency. We're all getting our feet under us. That you know the Canadian government processed two and a half million requests for funding within the first two weeks, and money was flowing within three to five days. And that was the point. Of course, when you've got a hemorrhaging patient on the operating table and you're giving a huge blood transfusion, there's going to be blood on the floor. That's just how it works. But we have to say the patient and I think we're doing that. Agreed. So my topic today is all the hubbub about Andrew Shear and his citizenship, which, you know, of course is a huge policy issue for Canadians, isn't it? Um, oh. <laughs> deep, deep policy questions. Here's what bugs me about this. I never actually cared about Andrew Shear's American citizenship at the time. It just seemed like this one of those kind of gotcha things that didn't really go anywhere, except for this except for things like how Andrew Scheer has dealt with the issues of racism in his own party. Here we have Derek Sloan, an Ontario MP, literally questioning the patriotism and national loyalties of the Public Health Officer of Canada, Theresa Tam, We had Michael Cooper last year uh, lecturing a Muslim uh, witness at a committee hearing uh, about drawing too much of a connection between online hate speech and the Quebec shooter. And then Michael Cooper actually hauls out and reads the New Zealand shooters, the guy who killed 51 Muslims in a mosque shooting in New Zealand, and reads his manifesto. And so there's just too much of this stuff and too much damn hypocrisy. But it seemed to be okay. Pay for the leader of the Conservative Party to keep his American citizenship. Now, what is it that's different about the American citizenship?
0: I honestly have no idea how the American citizenship thing is related to the Michael Cooper thing. But I mean, to be honest with you, I think every party is, is hypocritical on this front. I mean, I think every party uh, over time has had dual citizens, dual American citizens I don't care. I don't care if liberals have dual American citizenships. I don't care if NDP people have dual American citizenships. And I don't really care if the Green Party has dual American citizenships. This is not really an issue. And it was always a bit of a gotcha. What I find entertaining about it is the degree to which Andrew Scheer just obviously doesn't care anymore. Because if he cared, yeah, he true. would have sort of um, uh, disavowed the American citizenship. But
1: he. Would but have just what said. is he doing there if he doesn't care? They decided not to replace him
0: with an interim leader. So, I mean, that's, I mean, he ba- he's basically filling time. He's a lame duck guy and, and the degree to which uh, he just obviously doesn't care enough to renounce the citizenship is, is just kind of
1: entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> this episode of Oppo is brought to you by Wealthbar. Is your bank putting you on hold when it comes to your investment questions? They take your money, but not your phone calls. They make you book a meeting just to book a meeting. There's a better way. Wealthbar makes accessing professionally managed investments and financial advice ridiculously easy. When you invest with Wealthbar, they'll pair you with a professionally managed portfolio that's tailored to your goals. Their convenient app makes it easy to set up automatic deposits, open new accounts, and check in on your progress at any time. And when you have questions, their financial advisors are available directly through the app. No appointment necessary. Start investing with an advisor at your fingertips through Wealthbar's top-rated app. Sign up online in minutes at wealthbar.com slash canadaland and you'll get a $100 fee credit.
0: So with that, we're going to uh, welcome Joanna Chu onto the show. Sandy, tell us a little bit about Joanna for our people who are
1: unfortunately unaware of her. So the reason that we should be listening to Joanna Chu among many voices, diverse voices in Canadian media, but in particular on this subject is that she is a Vancouver-based journalist for the Toronto Star. But in addition to that, she spent eight years in China and Hong Kong reporting for the French news outlet AFP uh, and reporting for South China Morning Post, The Economist, and the Associated Press. Her reporting has won a Human Rights Press Award, and she is the founder and chair of New Voices Editorial Collective, which celebrates the work of self-identified women working on the subject of China. New Voices actually has a podcast, you should go and listen to it. And they represent uh, over 500 women who are experts and uh, media voices on greater China. So Joanna knows her way around the issues of China, and the issues of racism in Vancouver, and how this latest narrative about blame China is playing out on the ground in Canada. (laughs) Joanna Chu, can you tell us about, you've most recently been covering issues about uh, racism, anti-East Asian and anti-Chinese Canadian racism especially that has exploded in the west coast area in vancouver Mm -hmm. and and perhaps in other parts of canada Mm -hmm. Uh, and you have a you've published a story on just last friday may 15th telling us more about that can tell us about what you've encountered what you've seen and what you're experiencing as a canadian of chinese heritage
2: yeah so i was overseas for about Eight, nine years in the last decade. And I think in that time, a lot of the sentiment in Vancouver was rising against people of East Asian descent, and in particular, really targeting people from mainland China. Um, Except the issue, part of the issue, was that people didn't seem to be able to tell apart, you know, people's races because China itself is such a diverse place. So, Even before, like long before the pandemic hit and Chinese people were being scapegoated for spreading the coronavirus around, um, there were random attacks on people on the street. Um, My friend was just beat up randomly. And the kind of things that get into the public sphere are ones where there just happens to be someone taking a video of the situation or there's surveillance footage that police release. And I think what's happened in the last... Few weeks where we see more and more of this, we realize that this is really the tip of the iceberg. And I wrote a piece with my colleague Wang Yi Li, who's also of Hong Kong Canadian descent, about kind of root causes of this. And we spotlighted Vancouver because I think it's particularly a tense part of Canada where we see all these issues of poverty, the opioid crisis, gentrification. It's really led to all of these like broiling tensions where in the last decade or so or more, I think even before then before it was more of the spotlight on um Hong Kong immigrants in the 90s which my family was part of where Chinese people or Hong Kong people were blamed for all sorts of social issues in Vancouver there's been this scapegoating for a long time and unfortunately more so than before it seems it's manifesting in really disturbing violent attacks on people of Asian descent and and just yesterday it looks like an indigenous young woman was punched in the face and someone mistook her for someone from China and was shouting racist things at her.
0: I spent most of my childhood and my teenage years in the Vancouver suburbs, that that area. And I can totally confirm that your experience reflects what I saw, you know, as a very young woman there was a really intense anti-Asian sentiment where I was in the 90s as well. And, you know, there was the sense that even down at the high school level, there was the white kids mall and then there was like the Asian kids mall and there wasn't a lot of cultural crossover happening. And it was a very, very intensely sort of racist environment at times. Mm. Um, So, I mean, I don't think that to some extent that the anti-Asian sentiment is new, particularly in that region, but I have no doubt that it's certainly intensified as a result of COVID. But I think it's a very different kind of racism to what I've experienced in other parts of the country like uh, for example I went to a university in Toronto and the anti-Asian sentiment really I didn't see as much of that there as I saw when I was growing up in the west coast uh, Mm -hmm. in sort of the suburbs of Vancouver but I don't know like what's your experience of it been?
2: I think it's definitely changed, especially since I started working for the Toronto Star. So I went out to Toronto more often. Mm-hmm. It was kind of almost like a sense of relief whenever I left Vancouver. That I I realized after a while, just walking down the street in Vancouver downtown as a East Asian person, like sometimes people would glare or say things. One time I was leaving my office, and of course I like I commute downtown from. Burnaby because I can't afford a place closer to Vancouver as a journalist but this woman just like ran at me and started um ranting and said I I was driving a Porsche that almost hit her and saying all these kind of things about how I was just like rich Chinese bitch and things like that Mm -hmm. so you it's amazing like you see yourself as you know you know yourself and then in Vancouver you realize that a lot of people look at you as this walking stereotype that they kind of target all of their frustrations about our city's particular economic inequality about. And it's a really tense environment, like a pressure cooker. And then I go to Toronto, where just suburbs, there's like huge suburbs of a lot of people of all sorts of ethnic backgrounds. And I felt a bit more comfortable. Um, During COVID, there has been anti-Asian harassment in Toronto as well, Ottawa, everywhere. Mm -hmm. But the most violence we've seen is in Vancouver, including last week, uh, transit police told everyone about a bus attack where a woman it was it wasn't sure what um what race she was, but she was standing up for two Asian women who were wearing masks, and a man who was insulting the Asian woman, blaming them for bringing coronavirus to Canada, he went on the woman, the good Samaritan who was trying to offend him, and he injured her so much he yanked out a significant amount of her hair. So people were really horrified, but then it just came to light a couple of days ago that this man actually was struggling with drug addiction. And, and he died one week after this bus attack that shocked so many people. Um, so then it led to, I wrote a piece with my colleague about how, just how sad all of this is in Vancouver in particular.
1: And just to clarify, I believe he was an overdose death. Is that correct?
2: It was an apparent overdose death from illicit uh, drug use.
1: And one of the uh, features of these attacks that's Alarming. I mean, all of this is alarming, but the vulnerability of the people who were attacked, the number of women who have been attacked, and then the elderly 92 year old man who was in a 7 Eleven and was verbally abused and then pushed and shoved. I mean, he could have, he could very easily have sustained injuries that would have killed him. So, do you have any observations about who the targets are, or are these just the targets that we're seeing in the media? And are there You've talked about the tip of the iceberg. Tell us more about your experience or knowledge of who is being targeted here.
2: So like I said, it's like a longstanding string of incidents in Vancouver. The ones that have been recorded in a video or police were able to talk about it. It kind of follows a pattern where it's not like an even fight at all. Usually is some kind of sucker punch or someone's walking down the street or in One case just recently, a woman was waiting for a bus at a bus stop and someone just comes up and punches them, shouts at them. It comes out of nowhere. So I think that makes people who look vaguely Asian very nervous because you don't know when it's going to come. It's hard to defend yourself if someone tries to punch you from behind. And like all levels of government have been speaking out and they're quite concerned because this is really, it shows really long standing and Very urgent issues that we, I think, we have to address as a society. When it gets so bad where it becomes almost commonplace that you see an elderly Asian man punched, pushed, um, abused, like there's something wrong, I think, with our society here in Canada.
0: So I kind of want to deconstruct the blame China sentiment that's happening right now. I mean, and I struggle with this myself because you know, I think that there is legitimate criticism to be uh, leveled at China and and its response to um, COVID-19. But when I'm hearing criticism toward China, I'm hearing criticism toward a state actor. And Mm -hmm. I really struggle to connect the criticism toward China as a state actor to individuals who happen to be of Asian descent. Like, I don't understand how people can go from China was engaged in a pretty significant cover-up effort on the early spread of this virus to, you know, I'm going to harass this person of Asian descent on a bus. Like, I can't make that connection happen in my head and I don't understand how people can.
2: I think it's even more ridiculous when you realize that a lot of people who left China who are immigrants are people who were escaping persecution from the Chinese state. Um, my family, we left Hong Kong. A lot of families left Hong Kong because there was a 1989 Tiananmen massacre where protesters in Beijing were slaughtered by Chinese military. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these people here in Canada, they have different stories and backgrounds, and it's not at all the case that the majority are supporters of the Chinese government. Mm-hmm. Even um, recent mainland Chinese immigrants, they might be actually too scared to say so because they still have relatives in China, and there's been... Many records of Chinese officials following them, even when they immigrate, to express to them that they're not to say anything critical. Otherwise, they threaten their family back home or they threaten their continuing business interests that are related to China. So, I think the issue is that there's not a lot of awareness of this. Um, people, like for a long time, I think it's a human behavior. When they don't really understand something, they don't want to try to understand. They want to just be like, I'm upset. I lost my job. This disease started in China and the Chinese government seemed to have mishandled it, at least at first. So now I'm angry and I see Chinese people around me. I'm already upset at them because I think they're all rich and buying up homes. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I would not say that it's like a something everyone believes because not everyone is going to be like this, but it's a significant proportion have these kinds of conversations. I wonder if maybe media had played a role maybe around 10 years ago when I think Even more so than now, there wasn't a lot of representation of Asian people in newsrooms who can be like, wait, if we just say China or Chinese people in the headline instead of Chinese government specifying that being Mm -hmm. more detailed, then this might be a little bit irresponsible and people might be pushed to lumping all Chinese people together with the Chinese government. I think legitimate issues of the housing market possibly being skewed by foreign overseas buyers, it's legitimate to talk about, but... The people who have the power to shape these conversations, personally, I don't think everyone was as careful as they should have been um, to guard against what some people might leap to, all of this lumping together. Mm-hmm. And I do think the conversation has become better and better in Canadian media, think tanks, academia in recent years. I think the Huawei situation and the two Michaels being detained mm-hmm. did a lot to push newsroom, push um, institutions to devote more resources to understanding China and that helps
1: and of course it's complicated by our own perceptions and our own language it was it's only been very recently i think that media has talked about Canadians of East Asian or Chinese heritage, and I'd be interested in your preferred um, mm-hmm. nomenclature around that. But, you know, for most of my life, Canadians, many of whom have been multi-generational families who have been here
0: mm-hmm. for
1: over a 100 years or 150 years, long, long predating many of our families, have been called Chinese and not Canadian. So can you break that down a little bit for us and your own perceptions of that and what we all need to know and understand?
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is really strange to me that we have this kind of unspoken thing where if you look white, it's, and you're in Canada, the assumption is that you've been in Canada for a long time when Mm -hmm. often that's not even the case. Even with
1: your British accent.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Your parents were born in the UK or Germany, but then quickly because you're white and Canada is so still a majority white country, you just get to be Canadian. Whereas anyone who's non white, who has some kind of skin tone, <laughs> is kind of not included in what we think of as Canadian still.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: For example, my great grandfather actually.
1: Hey, folks, I'm Mark
0: Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues
2: We literally helped build Vancouver. He was a construction worker in the early 1900s. And people like that who were literally building up Canada aren't really included in the kind of origin stories of Canada's founding. These people were persecuted for a long time and just kind of forgotten. So I do think a lot of just a basic language, like using the word Chinese-Canadian Personally, I'm trying to veer away from that myself because what is Chinese even? There's Taiwanese, there's Hong Kong, and there's so much um, also political tensions where Hong Kongers feel so persecuted themselves. A lot of them, they don't want to be called Chinese. So there just has to be more awareness of that and for people in media to not deny someone Canadian-ness, you know?
0: So Joanna, I think we're moving into a phase in this pandemic where um, people are starting to cast a more critical eye toward how our governments have reacted to the pandemic and also how foreign governments have reacted to the pandemic. And of course, you know, Australia and the UN are now calling for, you know, an independent review of how China handled this. In, In an era where we are seeing people of Asian descent be targeted in Canada, how do we navigate those waters? How do we sort of deal with criticizing the actions of the Chinese state without implicitly placing blame on people of Asian descent? Like, what's the language we need to be using? What's the tone we need to be approaching when we do this type of reporting?
2: It has to be extremely precise. Um, You have to say, you have to get into the habit of saying Chinese Communist Party, or at Mm -hmm. least Beijing or Chinese government. Like, too often, using the words China virus, like uh, President Donald Trump loves to use, it is actually problematic because it's hugely broad. Um, so if the Chinese government is responsible for something, you just have to keep saying over and over Chinese government, Chinese government. And that does help, I think, in in the long run, get people to put the blame or put the scrutiny on the actual small group of people that might deserve it. Mm-hmm. And not anyone of Chinese descent all over the world, which is millions of people, some of whom who have never stepped foot in China because generations they've lived all around the world. And also it's hard to navigate as well because it is very antagonizing it is very dramatic a lot of these diplomatic tensions you mentioned australia australia all they did was support an international independent investigation into the handling of the outbreak including in china but beijing has responded with basically threatening a trade war with australia and that's something us here in canada have to look at carefully because canada's already in such tricky political waters with china
0: It's such an interesting conversation because I think Canada is caught between two 800 pound gorillas. You know, we're caught between, you know, an increasingly politically unstable United States and our trade being hugely dependent on them. So we're trying to diversify our trade. And of course, who should we be diversifying our trade with? Well, the other major 800 pound gorilla in the room is, of course, China. So I have a lot of sympathy, actually, for the Liberal government and for Justin Trudeau right now, because I think that. Politically, geopolitically, we were caught between a rock and a hard place. And trying mm-hmm. to navigate the waters even before COVID-19 came onto the picture was really, really tricky. And now I think it's almost nearly impossible. But yeah. I'd be very interested to hear from your perspective, what do you think Canada should be doing in navigating that relationship with China?
2: Well, I've actually in the past year have been working on a book related to these issues. Um, it's not ready for marketing yet. There's no title or anything. But It involved me traveling all over the world trying to look at how different countries in that middle ground, like not the U.S. and not China, countries including Canada, Australia, and countries in Europe could respond to this growing escalation of conflict between the U.S. and China. Where we see in Canada, we've suffered because we're caught in the middle. I think one of the conclusions a lot of these middle power countries have come to is that there needs to be more of an effort to build Alliances and relationships with each other. So, for example, Canada and Australia are so similar in so many ways. We both have huge diaspora Asian populations who are targeted often by the Beijing government um, censorship silencing. Um, so, I think, including with um, the pandemic, people have been calling for more intergovernment alliance building, information sharing, including with Taiwan. So people aren't always so dependent on either the U.S. or China as these superpowers.
1: And Joanna, you have many years experience reporting internationally from Beijing, both Beijing and Hong Kong. What's your observation about the uh, Chinese Communist Party and the Beijing government and how they are responding to this crisis now and what their communications have been around alerting the world and the World Health Organization, and the world generally.
2: Yeah, I think this growing criticism of China during this pandemic has really thrown a wrench into a lot of its global ambitions. So Beijing has been trying to promote this um, new Silk Road project, where it's a multi-billion dollar project, where basically Chinese companies would fund and invest infrastructure around the world, ports, etc. And a lot of people think that it's part of this growing push from President Xi Jinping's government to not just be prominent in existing wo- global institutions, but to also build up its own, like, Chinese government led institutions globally. Is that the Belt and Road Initiative? Yeah, the Belt and Road Initiative. Mm-hmm. Um, I like New Silver Road better as a word because Belt and Road kind of sounds confusing, but that has to involve the goodwill of all of these countries. But with this growing criticism, because we see how early whistleblowers in China, including a doctor, Li Yang, who was punished by local police for trying to tell his colleagues about this new SARS-like disease. He was punished and then he later died. There's so much anger within China, so like among Chinese people, about this this early cover-up and censorship. And it's shed like a lot of internal and external criticism on this authoritarian state and if it's the best type of system when during a new pandemic, you need to have open sharing of information and transparency, which the Beijing government has shown time and time again, they don't want to be transparent. Um, that's not to say that there's not the, some of the best researchers, doctors, experts in China that have so much to contribute, but they're kind of hampered by their own um, state system, I think.
1: What's your observation of the uh, World Health Organization the delicacy of their mm-hmm. position in China where they are dependent on China allowing them access in order to be able to to function and and alert the world but then they end up in some ways almost being an accomplice to China in mm-hmm. some of this. Tell us what your observations are. I spoke with some
2: experts on this global health experts who look at the WHO and the United Nations and They do say that this kind of shows how the WHO now is kind of in a weak position when it comes to investigating new outbreaks, because they do need the host country right now to allow them to go in and make assessments. And that might have been a factor in why a director, um, Dr. Tedros, in January, he, he was criticized for praising Beijing's handling of the coronavirus in a way that was just really effusive. And some people said over the top and like people questioning why the WHO was so flattering towards Beijing at the beginning when it later became clear that there was at least like six days, according to the Associated Press um, government documents that they found of a cover up. And some people said it was because they depended on Beijing's cooperation to go in to do an assessment. So going forward, people say that there should be an independent analysis of whether this is a workable situation or if there's any way to try to change the way that this health agency works so that it has more power to to do its work and try to stop a global epidemic like this.
0: Jonah, there was a point that you made in, in your previous response there, and it reminded me of an article that I read on WIRED. About Mm -hmm. the degree to which the Chinese government clamped down on entirely good faith attempts to share information about what was going on in Wuhan in the early Mm -hmm. days of the pandemic, you know, shutting down social media, um, huge censorship of Chinese media um, on the mainland Mm -hmm. as well. Do you think that it's possible that this pandemic could change politics within China in the sense that it might empower more people to demand better of their government there?
2: I think that is the major question people are trying to figure out because I don't think that type of massive anger among Chinese people at their government can just fade away. Like surveys year after year show that actually, surprisingly, people have a pretty high view of the national government in China. They have a pretty low view of local officials. So what I've seen play out is that the national government in China has been trying to blame the local officials in Wuhan for mishandling the initial outbreak. And they've, they've fired senior officials and try to distance themselves that way but it's still open to questioning whether that's convinced people that oh it was only these kind of bad apples in in Wuhan in the province who mishandled it and our system is fine but i think with the whistleblower doctor him dying and all the outpouring of public grief in china because of it i think that was like one event that made it hard for the national government to clean itself from kind of like the tarnished image of what happened. So it'd be interesting to see what happens. But um, as always, when I was working in Beijing, I would just be surprised at how every time there was an opportunity for the government to maybe loosen up a bit and let its civil society actors play a more prominent role without cracking down, they would choose a cracking down method. Um, They would say that they want better rule of law, but then they would arrest 200 lawyers. And we see In Wuhan, a lot of independent citizen journalists, they also disappeared, which is a euphemism for just being kidnapped by the Chinese state police because they were saying things that were a bit too critical and officials wanted to silence them. And now, with what's happening with foreign journalists, which for a long time have been the only source of really more free reporting in China, they're getting kicked out. A lot of my former colleagues, friends who have American passwords, they're no longer allowed to. Work in China. So I think the world, as well as Chinese people, because of that, are going to struggle to have comprehensive, on the ground, factual reporting on China. And that's really worrying because that will just enable the Chinese government more and more to try to control the narrative as it seems to so strongly want to do, just control every detail of the narrative of what's happening.
1: What do you think about the numbers that China is actually reporting? I'm looking, for instance, at the that Worldometer's um, site that's tabulating all the deaths internationally, and they have China at three deaths per million, whereas the United States is at 273 deaths per million. That number by China, total deaths, I believe, of just under 5,000 doesn't seem credible. What is your assessment of that? There's been
2: like some online attempts to like count cemetery urns to try to figure out a number. And I think efforts like that are just not going to be any more scientific. And it does kind of make people kind of lean more to the conspiracy side of things. I think there is something to be said about how really rather quickly they completely shut down Wuhan. So people couldn't leave in or out and uh, police were on the streets forcing people to stay inside and sometimes dragging people who were suspected of being sick to quarantine centers. So they use kind of like the authoritarian methods to try to control the outbreak there. My hunch is that the situation in Wuhan was way worse than we know, but I've been in touch with friends in Beijing, Shanghai, like other cities, like China is so huge. And it does seem pretty credible that the virus did not hit a lot of other parts of the country besides Hubei province. In Hong Kong, they're pretty much back to normal. People aren't yes. even wearing masks much outside anymore. So
1: yes, Hong Kong has been remarkable in in this. It has only suffered uh, less than one death per million, and it, there've been amazing yeah. results. Um, just before we close off, Joanna, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about all the language around things like when we saw the Brian Adams. Mm -hmm. Um, inflammatory blowout the other day. Uh, And all the language about wet markets and bats and all of this kind of thing. Tell us, as someone who has worked on the ground as a journalist in China, what is the reality of the situation? What do we need to know? What what do we need to understand about this kind of language?
2: I was kind of flabbergasted all the rhetoric on wet markets as if they're just exotic freak show where all manner of wild animals are being displayed and consumed like raw that's really not the case. I think if you have been to Granville Island Public Market in Vancouver, that's a wet market. It just you have fresh produce and seafood on ice and things like that and that's exactly what happens all over Asia, China. And scientists think bats may have been the origin, but they think that there must have been another animal in between. So there's no evidence and there's very little actually possibility that people were eating bats and that's why this virus came to be. So I think a lot of it is racism and ignorance and fear mongering about these scary, scary markets when markets like this are <laughs> commonplace all around mm-hmm. the world, including mm-hmm. Canada, that white people like to go to. And it's very like hipster and like farm yeah. markets, right? Those are wet markets. So yeah. I'm just kind of confused about that. It just shows a level of um, lack of knowledge and basic understanding about different cultures that some people have. And it also glosses over, I think, how um, actually better prepared a lot of Asian countries and Asian populations are about responding to an epidemic. Because a lot of Asian cultures, including Japan, Hong Kong, we already had a mask wearing culture. And I think that's a factor in why a place like Hong Kong, Taiwan did so well in fighting the outbreak.
1: Taiwan, Japan, Hong Kong, Singapore, even New Zealand, Australia, and even the West Coast British Columbia, Mm -hmm. if you include that. It's a stark, stark contrast to what happened in Europe and the United States. In fact, I think it's arguable to say, looking at what we're seeing out of Quebec and Ontario, that it was the United States was the main source for Canada's pandemic outbreak Mm -hmm. rather than China. And just as in closing, uh, do you have any thoughts? about even how the lenses that we're using, even the the focus on China as the originator. You know, we know now from Bloomberg's report on um, the BC response that BC, on January 10th or 12th, um, China issued the genetic sequence of the coronavirus, and BC was able to derive a test within a week. So, in early January, countries were already supplied with the information that they needed to respond to this. So, any observation about that?
2: So, at the most, I think we have proof that Chinese officials, local officials in, in Wuhan or that area, sat on the information for six days. But by early January, the world already knew and could prepare. And yet countries, especially like the U.S., were very slow in preparing. So I don't think people can completely blame like a six-day delay in reporting in China for the slowness in fighting the epidemic. And I think, like you said, there is something to be said about how people of Asian descent who already had dealt with the SARS outbreak in 2003 were better prepared and might have protected their own communities in some extent, because my relatives in Vancouver were wearing masks. They were yeah. trying to tell everyone about it. Like you had to take it seriously. You saw how Richmond, a really, really predominantly Asian municipality in the greater Vancouver area, they locked down in January, February yeah. way before yeah. everyone else did. So I think a more positive lens, um, so that we're not always just criticizing, is to kind of have gratitude towards Asian people around the world for taking it seriously so early and trying to educate the public about how to protect each other and ourselves.
0: So, Sandy, I'm so glad that we had Joanna on the show, because I thought that that interview was really informative, really thoughtful, and very broad and balanced I'm also really excited about her book, to be honest with you, depending on how that book goes. I think that could be a real global bestseller because that book is going to get to the heart of how not only us in Canada, but a lot of sort of middle power nations navigate the increasingly turbulent geopolitical waters as the international rules-based order is challenged.
1: I agree. And I think that what's great about Joanna is her level of expertise with this subject matter, not only here in Canada, but really what is going on, just, just the nuances. Uh, that, that interview uh, to me could have gone on a lot longer because there's just so much more to unpack and so much more for Canadians to understand about how we are going to relate to Asia generally. And as this economy emerges, it's not even emerging anymore. It has It is uh, ascending into a dominant power force in the world.
0: So we're going to be trying something new here on Oppo. We would like to open up the mailbag for any questions listeners might have. You can tweet us at oppocast or send us email at oppo at canadalandshow.com.
1: Or send your cards and letters. I don't know to where. And your drawings. (laughs) Definitely your drawings.
0: We love your drawings.
1: (laughs) But since we don't have any questions for this episode, we're going to revisit one of Jen's old bugbears, Doug Ford. Jen, on a scale of one to five cheesecakes, how fine did Doug Ford turn out this week?
0: Well, Sandy, I will confess that I do not live in Ontario, uh, so I haven't been paying all that much attention to Doug Ford lately. But I'm willing to give him a three out of five out of the cheesecake fineness scale.
1: What do you think? Well, you know... I actually thought that little cheesecake, uh, thing was really fun. Wouldn't it be nice if politicians, like, gosh, it, it's just so hard, I think, for politicians to kind of let down their guard and actually be unguarded. I don't know enough about Doug Ford except everything about Doug Ford, but I thought that was, that was fun. And I'm for fun. Whenever we can have fun, that's, I'm, I'm there. So that's good.
0: Basically, it looks like after a couple of very, very rocky years for the Ford uh, regime, he seems to have found his stride in this uh, pandemic. And now it just remains to be seen whether or not he can continue to follow in that stride uh, for the next couple of years. But so far, as I said, I, I'm giving him a, a
1: solid, fine three out of five cheesecakes. A lot of governments are, are finding that they're, right now they have support during this pandemic. It will be interesting to see how much uh, these bumps last.
0: Yes, and maybe that will be another conversation for a future episode of Oppo, and I'm hoping it will, because that's an interesting one. So uh, let's put a pin in that and come back to it.
1: Yeah. So that's it for Oppo this week. We'll be back in two weeks, and once again, the ways to get in touch are at oppo at canadalandshow.com or on Twitter at oppocast.
0: This episode was produced by David Crosby. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Theme music by Nathan Burley.
2: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods